Welcome to Being Human. This week's guest, I'm delighted to say, is Alistair Coburn. He is one of the signatories of the Manifesto for Agile Software Development, for those who are aware or of the Agile Manifesto, as it's better known. He also has written several books in the software development space, uh, and his latest work, Heart of Agile, is what really drew me in and why I'm excited to have you on the show, and I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, so, Alistair, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And just as we were uh, chatting before we came on here, you said, well, we should talk about your PhD in the context of, of being human. So, so yeah, right, right. So why do people get PhDs? There's a question for you. And if you ever, if you ever uh, have, have, you know, doctor, PhD doctor, not medical doctor on a show, <clears throat> I suggest you ask them why they, why they got a PhD. Because it's sort of like five years of really arduous work and it's not clear that there's ever any payback, right? And so um, when I was, I was working at IBM Research in Switzerland for years, the research laboratory there, and I didn't have a PhD at the time, you know, which is quite unusual. And I asked some, one of the older people something about a PhD, and he said, having a PhD only announces to the world that you are unreasonably stubborn, because you always hit a point where, you know, many, many people get to 90%, 80% of their, you know, the PhD and they give it up. He said, well, if you get that last 10%, you just have to be unreasonably stubborn. He says, that's, that's really what I know about PhD people. So I didn't need it. And, and other people, and other people, you know, whatever, whatever it is that takes them that last 10%, you have to, you know, pretty much turn your life upside down. And, you know, if you're going to be a, a university professor, it's the entry ticket. You have to have it. But if you're not going to be a university professor... This is really soul searching. Like, why am I doing this thing? And since your show is called Being Human, it has an interesting story. So, I was—I uh, got my PhD pretty late. Uh, you know, as these things go, I got it in two thousand and three, which is which is after the Agile Manifesto. Um, and the reason I got it is interesting. So, so I'm, I have a nice life. I'm a consultant. I did research. You know, stuff. I literally have no use for a PhD in my life at all. And my son at age, I'm going to pick a number like at age five or something. And he says to me one day, uh, dad, you need a PhD. And I go, and I go, oh, oh, that's interesting. Uh, this is my middle son, Sean. I go, and I go, why is that? He says, so you could be an astronaut. And I go, oh, okay. You know, and then kind of like a year later, he asks me again, you know, Dad, you need a PhD. So he's age six or seven or some number like this. You know? And I go, oh, why is that? And I can't remember what his answer was. But there was the third time, and, and he was back in school. We'd been to Norway and been to school there and came back and had a new school. And he goes, Dad, you need a PhD. And, and I go, why is that? He said, so you can become principal of the school and put the kids in the corner, make the kids stand in the corner when they're mean to me. And, <laughs> and I was going, okay, so... So what's going on in his head such a, that he's bringing this up? And so here's what I constructed as my construction of what's happened in this little, this little guy's head. He's going, my dad is smart. Smart people have PhDs. My dad doesn't have PhD. So the universe is awry. The universe is not in order. And it was bothering him that the universe was somehow like misaligned. There was a misalignment in the, in the world, right? And I said, I thought, okay, I'm going to fix that for him. I'm going to get the PhD so that his world is, 
is aligned. It's in order. And that's why I got the PhD. That's some commitment. <laughs> so, you're, so you're a committed father and you're stubborn. So, so that's what, right. So why do people get PhDs? And apropos being human. And I thought that would be a good story to start with. Was the reason I got wow. the PhD was because I went, the world is obviously, it's a signal, right? The world is not in mm. order. And he's my messenger saying, Alistair, look, the world's not in order. You need to fix this little, this little wrinkle in the universe. But you never got to tell his uh, bullies to stand in the corner. No, no. Yeah, by five years later, right? By the time I got there, he was. <laughs> it learned some karate by then. No, no, no. You just, you know, you move up and on. So that's, yeah, so that's how I got. And related also, um, uh, I was able to put the word people in my PhD title, in the dissertation title. And people don't do that in the, in the research world. You know, they have roles, they have resources, they have processes, they have these things. And, and um, the guy who was kind of my mentor uh, coach for writing the, the dissertation, which I, I got in Oslo, I got it from Oslo, and this guy was from, from Denmark, a very holistic uh, kind of a thing. And, and he showed me his second PhD dissertation, because in Denmark, they have two levels of, of doctorate. And it like... It was perfect. It was about methodologies and holistic, and it was my specialty. He covered everything, dotted the I's, crossed everything. So I walked in. And I said, "Hey, you know, I want to get a, a PhD, and this is like my general dissertation topic area." He says, "I just finished my second dissertation. Read this book." And so he gave it to me, and I sat there with my heart sinking because, like, he'd covered everything, everything, everything. And and so I said, okay, so if he did his job right, then I would be able to take this dissertation into any company in the world and fix whatever the problem is, right? Because he's done everything. I can't find any flaws in this in this thing. His name's Lars Matthiasen, by the way, a wonderful guy. So then I said, but so it doesn't work. I couldn't take his PhD dissertation in into any company and fix their problems. And I was so so what's missing such that I can't take this beautiful comprehensive work and fix all problems with it? And the answer was because a company is full of people. When you talk about being human, a company is full of people and people have got weirdnesses, right? People have got warts in their personality. People are all skiwumpus shaped things. Skiwumpus, I love that. Skiwumpus shaped things. And we write processes, we make procedures and bureaucracies, assuming that people are nice, round, spherical, smooth things, right? And you say, we want one triangle shaped, you know, being here and one trapezoidal shaped here and then if we have a square one here right then we can assemble a system uh that will work at a company and so we we write these job descriptions and the people who show up don't match the job descriptions because the job descriptions presuppose a personality right so i in in, in the late 90s i was uh, looking at methodologies in companies and it became clear to me in some after some consulting, the people occupied the positions didn't have the personalities of that was presupposed by the position. So we had a tech lead, super programmer, who didn't like to talk to people. Well, that may be stereotypical, but as a tech lead, his job is to coach the junior programmers. He has to actually teach them something about programming. He's a mentor them. And he was a not so he would change their code at midnight, you know, so they would come in in the morning. And I asked this guy one day, I said, said, I just thought of an interesting problem you should be having, you know, with the system. How do you resolve that? And he goes, well, as of this morning, it works like this. And it was a, it was a brilliant design. It was absolutely brilliant. 
but it happened at two in the morning, you know, when this guy was sleeping in the, right. So there's a case where we had a problem on the project because the personality of the person didn't match the, the presupposed personality. And there was another project, a big project where there was a cross team lead. Now, there was a hundred person project. So this person manager was in charge of, you know, whatever, 12 or 14 teams. It's part of his job is to make difficult decisions. Somebody has to make the awkward trade off and tell team A or B, you know, whatever, you don't get this person, you don't get this money, but whatever it is that they have to say, they have to do that kind of prioritization. And this guy just was a nice guy. He was just a nice guy and he didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And so he couldn't take the hard decisions. And so it put the project in a difficult place. Right. So people have all these, all these, all these weird shapes. So that's why Lars Matthiasen's thesis wouldn't work in any company. Mm. So, so I said, okay, so that's interesting because that gives me now an avenue of research, which is to include people as people <laughs> in the whole context of methodologies and processes. So he came downstairs, you know, like an hour and a half, two hours later after he gave me some time to read his thesis, he said, he said, uh, you know, so how are you doing? Obviously, you know, obviously feeling happy. He had just defended his thesis. And I said, I said, uh, it's okay. You know, you don't say the word people in here anywhere. He grabbed the book from me and he's like, looking through his book, because he's a very humanistic person, right? But he couldn't make an error that big. And he's flipping through. I said, it's in, I looked in the index also. It's not in the index. It is because you talk about roles and, you know, all that stuff. It's like, like that. So I made sure that my PhD dissertation, it's called People and Methodologies in Software Development. So I got the word, actually not, you know, I have the word people in there, which is really difficult to do. Right. I told well, you the it, answers are long. Yeah, no, I love that. But what's, um, and what particularly about people? What did you focus on? Well, the, the, the questions that were um, prevalent at the time, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, the question, the dominant question I used to anchor the, the dissertation was, is it possible that there was one ultimate software development methodology that would be the method? Everybody was in the search for the methodology, right? So I, I, I posed there's two choices. Either there's one or there's an infinite number. There are, it's not, if, if it's not one, it's not going to be five. It's not going to be 20. Right. And I had written a paper where I showed there were as about 65,000, right? So it's either one or 65,000. And there's a reason. And, and I got that from, from another book, a guy who had done all the math and the different kinds of projects. And you multiply all the combinations and permutations at that time was 65,000. And it's much bigger now, right? Exponentially mm. more. So it's either, it's either one or it's infinity. And so the first question was, is it one or is it infinity? And if it, the second question is, if it's one, what are the properties or characteristics of the one? I'm not going to say what is the answer, but how would you even characterize anything about it? And if it's infinite, what are we going to do about this infinite number of methodologies? They're going to be raining on us all the time, right? There has to be some way of living with that. And then the third question is where I brought in the people. And the third question was open-ended and just said, what's the interaction or the influence of people issues, factors in with the methodology question. So I was, I got my open-ended question in there. Right. And so, and so the answer to the first question is it's infinite, right? There's just an unbounded number of methodologies. And at the time I had been recommending every project needs its own methodology, right? You cannot have one. You cannot, don't even think about it. A global corporate global methodology cannot work, will not function 
it's like a mathematical proof, right? And I've done this to people and they just go, yeah, you're right. Okay. Um, so there's an, a never ending arrival and shifts and twists. So I started with, with a methodology per project and that was an early paper I wrote. And by the time I finished my dissertation, I looked at all my notes and projects and everything I realized and, and, and part of the metaphor, but um, a methodology is very short lived, like three months. So methodologies or, or pro even processes should be like, like, like tissues, should be like cleaning. You blow your nose on them and you throw them away, right? You use it, you kick yourself in a direction, and within two or three months, you have to change. And so that means now that the methodology design activity has to be so fast that the time is adequately spent inside of two months. It has to pay for itself in two months which means you can't spend more than half a day on it, right? Are you, are you following? This is all yeah, like logic, logical concept. When you go down this path, that's what you mm -hmm. end up with. So the people who do the like six months to design a process or a methodology, the lifetime of that thing, effect, the effective lifetime, right? It's a sweet spot is a couple of months. Right. So, you, so that was then the part of the, in my agile software development book and my PhD dissertation talking about these, these very short methodology tuning workshops. So I might go into a new place and spend two days doing some team building and process methodology construction. But after that, it's reduced to like one or two hours uh, every month or two. Right. And so it's, it's, it's got, it's not a problem of, you know, return on investment and time spent. And, you know, you can do, do this in lunchtime in the cafeteria once a month. And then the third question was, well, I got to the very end of all of that, right? So that's kind of interesting from a methodology perspective. At the very end, I go, so, yeah, that's very nice. But, like, but we're using these humans as, as active devices in this design system, right? So they're not transistors and resistors. They're not rods and levers. They're these, these crazy, crazy things called human beings. And how does that interact with, you know, all of our methodology and process design? And, and basically what you get is that, is that it wrecks everything. Right? So actually, <clears throat> so I now talk, after that, I started talking about a, a project. I'll call it a project. So team, it could be eight people or 50 or 200 or whatever. And I'll, I'll use the, the, the metaphor like an ecosystem. So in an ecosystem, when you talk about an ecological niche, it could be in the jungle, it could be in the mountains, could be arid, it could be rainy, right? It could be cliffs, right? And, and you look at the flora and fauna, and they're different at the top of the cliff than they are at the bottom of the cliff, right? So, and so you get the subspecies and right, all of that stuff, and you map that into a corporate setting, okay? And so you've got predators, right? There are people who are predators. There are people with very strong, anybody with a very strong personality could be mapped to like a predator, right? And I like to make fun of the, like a tall building is like a cliff, you know, and the execs sit on the top floor and the testers are in the basement and you get all the species on the different floors, right? And you get the interactions between, right? The metaphor is fun to play with. It, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. it, it lives. Um, and, but the point is this now, when you talk about processes and methodologies, the actual decision-making that's done is based upon the personalities of the people, not based on the process. So if you hire somebody, a, a real type A, large personality individual, whether male or female or whatever, it doesn't matter, they just occupy a lot of social space, right? And they just take over decisions, right? And they demean people and push people down, or, or they just inflate themselves. They don't have to be nasty. They just occupy a lot of social space. 
And so decision-making will change. And when that person leaves, there's a power vacuum. And everybody has to readjust their decision-making. And then you bring in a new person, nobody knows who the person is. And all the decision-making starts shifting, right? So this now is my anchor for anything about processes and methodologies, is, is actually living with the individual humans who are present. And as they adjust to each other, and as people come and go, and that ecosystem then changes. It's super right. specific, right? Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And the last guest on the show is a, a guy called Sidney Finkelstein from Dartmouth College. And he'd written a book called Super Bosses and interviewed 200 of these bosses that not only were very good at running companies, but also um, fostering talent, you know, to go on to you know, dominate these industries. But he said that one of the specific characteristics of a super boss in his lexicon is that uh, they shape the team around the talents of the people and they're constantly attuning the team to the different talents that exist not according to you know how why they brought them in or some template of how a team should work and it's fascinating that you're pointing yeah yeah 100% in agreement uh I just came in I took me you know it took me a decade or so to figure this out right I came in I was assigned by IBM in 1991 to create a methodology for uh, object-oriented technology projects, Smalltalk and C++, you know, at the time and later Java. So I came in through, through the doorway called, you must make us a methodology. Whatever the answer is, it is a, it is a methodology, right? Uh, previously, I'd been on a project in IBM where the answer was a tool. So you can, whatever the problem is, the answer is going to be a tool, right? And, and I worked on that and I saw the limits of tools. And so like, I refused to touch tools anymore, right? And then I got into methodologies. And, and so it took a long time to deviate out and around and come to the dominant factor are going to be the personalities and the interactions between the personalities on the team. And to try to fold that into my, you know, by now my expertise, which is methodologies and how do you fit personalities and methodologies, right, together. Right. And as I put, and you concluded that there is some role for the methodology in spite of the, um, the, 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 well, there is. I, I, nature of the uh, human beings, but uh, it's just it's, it's time. Well, limited. so let's let's yeah. So let's. I had to wrestle because I hate processes. I don't have a single neuron in my brain that that can operate the word process. And I was hired to write processes. And for years, I talked to my you know sort of technical bosses and mentors and go, I don't know what a process is. I don't know what it looks like. I don't like them. I don't like to follow them. I don't like to write them. You know, but I'm in the process writing business. Help me understand this. Um, and so eventually I had, to, I did write a blog post going, what's the value of a process? Um, and there's two, two values to a process. I'll see if I can regurgitate this quickly. But the one I think about is, is it's a checklist. So one of the things a process does is it provides you a checklist. So, you know, I like it when I, I, I'm get on an airplane, pilot and a co-pilot are in there and they have a checklist. They can't take off till they follow the process. Now, what is the process that follows is that they check, you know, this switch is here and that switch is here and this tank does this, you know, and the airlines move, right? And so that's the process that they follow. So that's one use of the word process. And it's a checklist. And we applied this. The, the other thing I would say about <clears throat> um, processes, so one of my mentors said, a methodology or a process is so large that an individual person can't see it. 
It is so like the fact that you constructed an ad uh, to put in the paper to look for a particular person says we need a person with this skill who's going to do this work and produce these you know artifacts and talk to these people in the organization. Then you hire them. You don't have to teach them how to do their job. Presumably, you hire them because they know how to do. It. You need to teach them. This is the format in which we write our whatevers, and here's who you talk to, and here's our meetings, right? And so, in the late '90s, I wrote you know some mega uh, um, process methodology things, and I put it in an access uh, database because there were only three things. There's there's roles that you know that are being, and those roles produce artifacts. So you list the artifacts. And then there are meetings or events or milestones. And so you could do the lifetime of an artifact. What's its creation event? What's its destruction event? You know, what are the meeting review events that are the, the lifetime? Who has to be in the meeting to create it, to review it, or whatever the kill it is, right? Like that. And when you've done that, you've basically done the methodology or the process. And so you've got, I had a drawing, so with very fat bands this way, those are the roles of a project manager, a UI designer, a tester, you know, whatever. And inside of them, you had who had, was responsible for the artifact, requirements, document, project plan, test plan, test case, you know, whatever, whatever it could be. And then horizontal, on horizontally across the top, you had the timeline in the creation, review, and destruction of, right? So there's only these three things. And now when you, when you flip, flip this around and you look down the axis of, a, of an individual person, all they get is a checklist. It says, you're going to produce these artifacts, which are obvious to you. You're going to produce code. You're going to produce test cases, screen design. Like you hardly even need to say it. But you have to be in these meetings to get these things reviewed. And now I don't have to tell you your job. It's now process as checklist. Right? So that's process as checklist. And then you can just put on everybody's, you know, when I did that and I gave everybody their cut up little piece of the me is mega methodology, they look at it and go, Okay, well, yeah, I can do that, right? I go and call a code review meeting and I invite those people or, you know, or whatever it could be, you know, like that. And, and the and third, what, go ahead. Go, go, go and, then, and why is that helpful? Why is it helpful <clears throat> to have a, have a checklist? Oh, you want to make sure that the people, the people get their artifacts reviewed, right? So that we know who's, who is it that's uh, going to come up with uh, the master UI design, right? Somebody's going to come up with the master um, thing about uh, UI conventions and, you know, whatever is colors, it's Marriott. So we've got the Marriott colors. You have to have the Marriott colors on the website, right? Who's making that decision? Where is it going to be published? So all the other UI designers know to follow that standard, right? So that's important kind of stuff to do, right? Um, you're releasing some code, and so the, the the testers have to get a briefing to say what's coming their way, what's different, what they have to look for, right? So, so who calls the meeting? What is, you don't want to oops that meeting. This is like the 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 pilots in the cockpit, right? You don't want them to not check a switch or the airlines or the gas tank, right? They they check all the little things. Now, the other thing that's super interesting, and this is this is very important, um, is the other use of a process is to reduce communication between people. To avoid communication, that's that's a really weird thing, um, and and so when I was the junior hardware designer, my very first job, and I sit and I share an office with my boss, and like one of the first things he does, and we're drawing on paper, right, the big D sized paper, it was you know old school, and he says, when you get done with your drawing, you know, and, and review it with me, blah 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 blah, we'll go upstairs and we get the third drawer down on the right 
of this, you know, set of, of drawers where you can put huge D-sized piece, pieces of paper. And the drafting department, when they have time, will go there and pick out the drawing and then, you know, clean it up and make it official in the drawing. So part of the process was this letterbox where I could, I could drop stuff. And it's exactly to avoid me interrupting the drafting people, right? So, so these things we call processes, very often they're drop boxes. Now, now watch how this comes back to, to agile and processes because the moment you create drop boxes, people stop talking to each other. If the people can't talk to each other, then you need the drop boxes. But the two come hand in hand. So people call me up and say, hey, Alistair, you know, come and do some consulting we have a problem with communication. We want you to design a process that will help us. Now you see the, 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 the contradiction inside the request. I go, oh, if I design you a process that the people will communicate less, but probably your problem is because people aren't communicating enough, which means that we need to remove process, not add process, right? So you have to look at the situation and say, is our problem that we have, right, not too much or not enough, right? Can we... And so if you can't have communication, then you need process, you need drop boxes, right? So that's what people use Slack and, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, so you know where to look for something and people will get messaged about that something happened and they'll look because they're not talking to each other. <laughs> right. That's a fascinating paradox. Isn't it? That's uh, yeah. I love, I love, I love, I think the world is built out of paradoxes or, or you know, it's like a seesaw, right? You can't have both. And and I always feel like I have the right handle on a problem if I can get both sides of the seesaw. And the reason that's, it, that's not problematic is just wonderful because then you walk into any situation and you're not just holding one tool or one end of the seesaw, right? You can you can see the this and the that. Mm. And now you can move, right? If, if I like, for me... Principles are best expressed as graphs, curves, right? And then you and then you move up and down the curve, and you decide where you should be operating to get good value, and you don't get attached. So here's I give I love paradoxes, and I'll give you another example. I was at a company, and I guess I can't name the name, but it doesn't matter. But but I won't name the name. Um, and they had a, a an agile cluster, right? So they had a little war room, and they had all the people there, and and architecture matters, like. Physical stuff matters. All the detail. This is why it's an ecosystem. Everything matters in what your methodology or process is. So let's say this is the war room, and there's this little narrow hallway after the big hallway. And off of this little tiny narrow hallway was the private room where the, the tech lead sat. But it was a tiny room, so he had to leave the door open. The door opened in, in, in the door opened in the way so that the people walking this way would see into his see into his office. So everybody, when they were walking in or out of that room, would walk past the tech lead's office and then stop and ask him questions. So he got like nothing done. So, so here's the point. The normal agile recommendation is put everybody in the same room. Like I say this a lot. Right? It's, a, it's the normal go-to, we'll fix it, just put everybody in the same room. This guy was dying from interruptions. So they tried sending him home, right? So there's a case where the physical facility screws up the process or the methodology, right? We're into human, we're into what, what being human, right? Is the name of your mm. podcast. So we're living like in all of that stuff. So that, so I worked with the, um, you know, with the bosses to try to figure out what to do on this project. And so their immediate thing is, well, send them home with a laptop. 
I mean, with a computer. In those days, it wasn't a, I don't think it was laptops, but they were sent home with his, with his computer. But he had a newborn baby at home, so that wasn't going to work. Okay. So what we did at the end, and I called, I ended up calling the strategy cone of silence. Um, there's a part of the theory that says that people won't work, won't walk more than the length of a school bus, about 10 meters to ask mm, a question. Yeah. And they will for sure won't walk upstairs to ask a question. Now, normally this is a problem. And I normal, my consulting is to get rid of stairwells and walls and push people together to make the communication richer. And so they will ask questions. I normally want them to ask questions. Here's a case we didn't want every, anybody to ask him any questions. So we found him, they found him um, an, an office up, it was a huge, it was in Texas, one of these huge mega complexes, right? They found him an office upstairs and at the far end of the corridor and then told people to leave him alone. And I met him, you know, eight months later and I said, how's your project going? He says, oh, we're done. And I said, but you can't be done. I saw your project plan. There's no way you could be done. He says, no, no. When they moved me upstairs to that place, I just, I just coded it up and we got done. But, right? So, <laughs> when, we, when we talk about and methodologies and ecosystems and personalities, I want you to see that the, the ultimate methodology is just get your super programmer and leave them alone and let them code it up. Right? <laughs> Everything's, everything else is noise, right? And so we call that the cone of silence. That's the opposite of the agile thing, where you really want silence. And then so we've got this, these two things that are seemingly in conflict. Then I saw that actually they fit together, which is really wonderful, because how did IBM create the ThinkPad in, the, in, in like 1980? They know that nobody, no engineers can do original work inside of IBM. So they did a standard thing. They rented a warehouse in Boca Raton, Florida. And they put the design team into the warehouse and told them not to interact with the rest of IBM. They created a cone of silence around the team and what I call osmotic communication within the team. So now we have the co-location, what I call osmotic, all the, the information goes in through your pores, right? It's osmotic communication, right? Through your background, hearing and everything. So you have, you have osmotic communication within a room, cone of silence around the room. And that turns out to be a stock standard strategy for any company in trouble, the military, corporations, everybody does. You make a war room, right? And you sequester everybody from the outside world. And then, then they have this very rich communication to each other, but they're cut off from the world. So there's another example of things that are contradictory. And so it's an either or much of the time, but in fact, they fold together. Right. Yeah. So you see, when you start looking at the, the characteristics of humans as these devices, and then you look at what processes are good for and they do and the effects of the people, right? So processes are checklists and drop boxes, basically. And if you can't have communication, you need the drop boxes, you need the processes. Another time to use processes. Or, or potentially, not if you just, if you can't have it, but if you want to reduce communication. Absolutely. So the, the next example I was going to give is you have trainees and you have experts and the new, the new kids, the trainees are always interrupting the experts to ask questions. And I don't have to say software here. This isn't any, any place. And so you, besides training materials, you create, you create rules things so that the junior people don't keep interrupting the senior people with questions, right? There's other times when you want apprenticeship learning and there's times when you don't want apprenticeship learning because of the interruption factor. So literally, if you look at a situation, say, 
this amount of communication is damaging us, that's when you introduce process. Right, right. And until that reduces the communication to the extent where you need... Boom. To let, yeah. Yeah. No, I see it. I'm, always, I'm envisioning this, this, yeah. this scale or the golden mean type of idea where... Yeah. You want to yeah. yeah. So, so this is, I'm kind of a theoretician in the field. I'm sort of like a field anthropologist. I go around and I take notes and I'm also sort of a theoretical anthropologist. And I look at my notes and go, what's going on? Right. And use my own knowledge of people in the world and my own projects. And I try to get these things that, that sound theoretical, right. That the theory of what it, how things work, but they are applicable to every project, you know, all the time. And so I operate in a way differently than most of my colleagues. I actually operate from the theory. When I look at a situation, I look at patterns of communication, right? I'm thinking Dropbox is cone of silence, osmotic communication, personalities, you know, dominant people, vacuums, right? Shape of room, shape of the hallway. How does that affect communication? How does it affect um, morale, pride in work, right? Very human type things. These are the these are the sources. These are the things that drive and cause effects. So I can go into situations and say, well, but la 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 la, because you know, I know the I know how things hang together. Okay, and you're distinguishing yourself there. You say you come from theory, um, and others might say, well, I come from a methodology, but they might also describe that as some form of of theory about how to optimize a, a team. Yeah, so the difference, so I got into this, um, um, <clears throat> I'm one of the few people who, like, is a theoretical methodologist thing, right? So if you talk about the theory of software engineering, um, that's been my kind of passion for about 20 years now, right? So, and, and, and when I, and there are other people who have, there are occasionally I see people who do think called theory of software engineering, and I read what they've got, and it doesn't look like a theory to me. It's a process. A process is an answer. It's an answer to a question. It's not the how do I think about the question. It says, do this. Or do this, why? And I, uh, the question now you have to get to is part of we have to go up a level. What is a theory? And, and I read a wonderful paper. There's a, um, a Danish programmer, former he's dead now, Peter Nauer. And he did work in the 50s and the early 60s. He created the, 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 lang the spec for the, the language Algol. He created the, the uh, you used to be a programmer. Mm, yeah, C++, was, a bit of Java. Not. Yeah, there was a thing called BNF. And the people who write compilers describe the language, like if you're going to describe C++ or describe Java, the way of describing it is a, is a, is a format uh, called BNF. And the N is Nauer, so it's Bacchus Nauer form. Um, and that was done in the late 80s to describe computer languages. This guy's Peter Nauer. And Peter Nauer in 1986 uh, wrote a wonderful paper, which I've included in my books, called Programming is Theory Building, that programmers build theories about the world. But he, you know, I love, again, if we look at the human, every author lives in a time shaped by language and shaped by their experiences. So we would these days say everybody makes a model of the world. That's the language that we use these days. The model pops up a lot. So you go like, so he would have grown up pre-World War II or, you know, like he's, and the language they used at that time was theory where we would say model, right? You make a model of the world. He used to make a theory of the world. 
So he was going, well, what's a theory? And so he like, so he backed up and looked at what do the philosophers say? What is a theory and blah, blah, blah. But the, the net of that, that I took out of it that I like is um, if you have a theory, a theory helps you explain things, explain what you're doing to make predictions, to say, if I do that, this will happen. Right. Um, someone could ask you a question and you could generate an answer because you've got a model of the world. You have a theory of the thing like that. So if we say, I say I, I, I'm a theoretician. I'm looking for things that help us make explanations, right? So can you explain what happened on a project using your theory? Well, process doesn't do that. It doesn't explain nothing. It just says do this, do that. And here's an example. This was in the uh, mid-90s. I was on my first – it was a it was a big small talk project. It was one of the, you know, when small talk and object oriented was coming in and business people were trying to do it. And we had about a, a $15 million, one half year, 50 person project. And there were a number of these and, and they all died. They all, they all failed basically. Very, very few of them came. And ours succeeded. It was, it was like a unicorn uh, kind of a thing. And then years later, I can't remember how many years later, four, five, six years later, I got a call from somebody and they were doing, there had been a lawsuit. So provider A, and I wasn't given the name, so I don't know, provider A to client B was going to do a project very similar to ours. And it failed. It failed spectacularly and cost a lot of money. So the client was suing the provider. So client B was suing provider A. And they wanted an expert witness in court. So the guy was checking me out on the phone. You know, could have, oh, I said, oh, yeah, I know that. I was doing similar kind of project at the time. He started laying out the structure of the project, right? The people and, you know, the people and the locations and the stuff. And I said, you don't have to tell me what happens. Let me tell you what happens next. And I outlined for him the complete, you know, debacle that, that ensued. I said, this happened, this happened, this happened. And then, and then the thing died. And these people did die. He said, he said, normally we get on the witness stand somebody who says, yes, that trajectory makes sense. But I didn't tell you what the trajectory was. You told me what the trajectory was. Right? So that's what a theory does for you. Right. So I have a theory of software engineering that says if we understand something about humans and processes and this is and that, then you can go into a situation and you can make explanatory models and predictive models. You look at where the levers are. Here's the levers we can touch. Here's what we can't. Right. And now what I love is the lever you can't touch is human personality. Right. We, yeah. we could know everything that I know. I could know everything there possibly was to know about the topic. We go into a meeting and suddenly come a recently divorced couple face-to-face for the first time. Right? You could just say, Phew! you don't have to know anything to know that that meeting's a disaster. Right? You could just cancel the meeting and go home. Right? So everybody could make that prediction. Right? You could make that prediction. Right? So we could know everything about process, but when you hit personality, that's like all bets are off. Right. Okay. And but I'm, if I'm listening to this as, let's say, um, you know, an, an engineering manager or maybe even a marketing manager, uh, and let's say I'm interested in this agile thing and I want to go, you know, go more agile or whatever it may be, um, and somebody comes to me and says, well, here's a model. You know, here's a model. Here's, here's SAFE or here's Scrum or here's a model. But and but you're saying, well, actually, you're coming in it from a theory perspective, and I'm looking at these options, and I'm thinking, well, I can't become a software engineering theoretician or a or a or an, a, an agile marketing theoretician. 
Um, but this looks like it's a bit easier and more within my grasp to understand as a model. So yeah, so I'm that's going to go that way. I mean, it, that's a super that's a superb question. But other people don't have to become theorists because I am the theorist, right? So you, it, that, that part's been done, right? And and my job is to try to explain it in ways like with the stories I gave you that everybody could recognize. There wasn't anything I said that would surprise you, right? I mean, that, that surprised you that the, the things that are contradicting, but when I put you in a situation, it's obvious that this would not work or work. Like, you know enough about people. That's not, that's not the hard part. But actually, so now, but I get to bring out my little, my little sticker, Heart of Agile sticker, because I've been working on this for, since 91, which is what, 28 freaking years. I've been in this for 28 years. And, and the question is, from my mind is, how do you simplify the simplify the simple so it's actionable, right? And and um, and safe and all those. So Scrum is pretty good. It has very few rules, right? But it doesn't tell you if anything goes wrong how to fix it. Safe went the other way and added a bazillion rules that are very very hard to follow, right? But but claims to be complete for one situation it works. So what I did was I tried to find things. Um, I have now just four words, so I've reduced all of this to four words. Everything I sell is just four words. I'm going to put this up. So that people can see it. See if I can get this to show up there. There should yeah. four words: collaborate, deliver, reflect, and improve. Right. So I claim everything fits in there. And now we're outside of agile, and we're outside of software, and we're to any kind of any kind of initiative whatsoever. So this is kind of fun for me. And 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 watch this. This is not very theoretical. This is this is not going to surprise you. As people collaborate better, things go better. As people collaborate worse, things go worse, right? That's not rocket science. Uh, it's astonishing how quickly we forget it. So I show up in an organization and say, well, we want to do agile. We want to do, we can't do agile. We have to do agile. We're mil spec, we're DOD, we're whatever. I go, leave your process alone and improve the quality of collaboration between people. Boom, things will go better. You don't have to know nothing about nothing, right? So now... Um, but what's interesting is, is the reach, the reach of that is phenomenal. Um, because, uh, we get obvious, we, we get into trust. We get into fear. What causes fear? What are people afraid of? Well, they're afraid of looking bad. They're afraid of not getting a raise. They're afraid of ridicule. They're afraid of getting fired. They're afraid that their idea won't get implemented, right? That's fear. What's trust? How do you build trust, right? You see, we're outside of processes. Like we do safe. That's fine. Increase collaboration. We refuse to do safe. That's fine. Increase collaboration. Right? We're a government organization. We have to follow, you know, uh, uh, you know, whatever purchasing. Pro That's fine. Increase collaboration. Right? Every, everybody can find. I don't have to teach anybody how to collaborate. Everybody knows how to collaborate. They don't want to, but they know how. Right? And that includes me. So I was having some problem with somebody, and one of my colleagues go, "Did you go over and talk to her?" And I go, "And I, I, I sent two emails. I sent two emails." She goes, well, "You might want to go down and talk to her." I was, yeah, I know that. I'm supposed to do that. Yeah, right. It's not a mystery, right? So I had to go. Crap. Okay, I have to go over and talk to her. Right? Stuff like that. Right. right. So that's collaborate. Um, here's what's it's it's what I find it's cool these days on on collaborate. Um, is it gates into human resources, HR, annual appraisals, and executive bonuses. So if you have a big company, up at the top, very often the, 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 the vision bosses 
are given um, bonus plans that are conflicting. They're in conflict. So like one is given, you must increase, you know, sales or volume. The other is you must increase quality. Boom. These two can't collaborate. One of them is going to lose their bonus. And, and what that has an effect down the organization is the people below them can't collaborate. So the, so what I love is very unexpected. You see, we started with processes and we're suddenly in an executive. You know, so if anybody says, Hey, Alagil, uh, Alistair, talk to me, you know, agile at scale. Uh, do you prefer Nexus or Scrum at scale or say for less? And I go, which one of them talks about executive bonuses? None of them. If you don't talk about executive bonuses, you're not talking about scale. First thing you have to do is fix the bonus program. Second thing you have to do is annual appraisals. So people say, I've got my OKRs and I need your help to get my OKRs up. Well, I don't have time for that because I have to get my OKRs up. So you have to help, right? I need help from that person to get my, my, you know, evaluation points up. So nobody, people are limited. They can't help each other. So, so from my mind, if collaboration is not one of the two things they're evaluated on at the end of the year, it's not going to happen. Right. So you see just from this word, right? There's lots of things about collaborate, but when you say you don't have to be a theoretician, no, you don't have to be a theoretician, right? But I'll put in your face, trust, fear, annual appraisals, executive bonuses. Right. And I, and I can, I can completely understand how taking your model and simplifying it and coming back to those principles can help. But is there, is there a sort of broader message here in terms of the, the, the mindset or the, or the approach that I take as an individual? It, it, I mean, what I'm sensing here is it's something about a sort of questioning approach a first now, principles approach to the to the problems in front of me as as like a as a message is, is it something like that I, I love that I love that you brought that the, I should talk about um, deliver for a minute because uh, there's a strong message yeah. there but let's, let's go with what where you just went um, yeah so I was in I was in Australia and a, and a colleague of mine is is a consultant into banking and you know, works with the banking execs and says Alistair you know I love your program. Um, tell me what to tell the bosses to tell the troops, right? Which is the way that these things work, say for Nexus or, uh, or Scrum at scale. Any of those are based on telling. I, I'm the expert. I will tell you what role definitions to have and what meetings to have, right? And so on. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not going to tell you anything. And you're not going to tell your execs anything. I'm going to dialogue with you about how to dialogue with your exec, your exec, about how to dialogue with the people. So when you said, is a, we're changing it to first principle. You don't, have to go, you don't have to go theory. People know this stuff. People know this stuff. You have to open the dialogue. And so the, given that I only have four words to sell to the world, right, that we're, we're in the heart of Agile, we're creating or attempting to create what I'll call a culture of listening. So when you said, are you, are you, are, it's an inquiry. Always it's an inquiry because the only source of information is either the internet or the people around you. So if you have a manager or an exec, they should dialogue with the other people and find out what the other people know, what the other people think, what the other people have seen. That sum of information is localized, like I told you, right? Everything's local and is greater than everything else except what you can find on the internet, right? So you do an internet search and you talk to the people. 
and you've got that. So we're literally, and, and so this guy says, yeah, but he says, I've been trying that, but the execs tell me, I'm not here to dialogue with you. I hired you to tell me. You're the expert. Tell me. And I said, that's fine. Then that's not your client. You don't have to have all the clients in the world. If our tone is dialogue-based, people will self-include and exclude. And I was shocked. I was in Paris at, the, at Orange, the big telecom, and they're very, you know, stereotypically very bureaucratic, hierarchical country and industry mega corporation. And the exec who brought me in was very high. People are growing up more in dialogue and less in, in edicts these days. And he was in his, let's say, early 40s. And he was a very dialogue based individual. And if I came and showed him, told him, we will tell you what to do and do this, he goes, I wasn't born yesterday. I've been around the block. That isn't going to work. I show up and say, here's how we dialogue. And he goes, oh, thank goodness. A consultant who's not just trying to tell me stuff, right? Yeah, I'm in the dialogue. Well, you can dialogue with these other people. I'd love to dialogue with these other people, right? So if you're going to do the heart of agile type of thing, the the most up-to-date agile is dialogue-based, not telling-based. And people will self-select in or out, right? If they want to be told, they'll go to safe and they'll be told, right? And then it'll have its ups and downs or whatever. And if they don't want to be told and they're up for dialogue, you know, we've got the dialogue approach. Right. Yeah, and that's, that's what I was sensing was coming through here. And, and I suppose what you're offering with Harvard is, is just some, some suggestion. Well, this is my interpretation now. You tell me whether I'm right, right or not. It, it's some some venues for dialogue, right? Some places Correct. as well. So, so I got to jump to the, to the deliver yeah. thing um, I'm here. Um, <clears throat> the thing that's a shock and a surprise is that we're not, in a sense, we're not delivering software. We're not delivering product. We're delivering decisions. And so the shift that I'm trying to get now, and I'm, I'm you know, in the process of writing a book about all this, but the first section of the book is, is an, an organization is made of decisions. It's the atomic building block or the molecule from which organizations build things. Now, this is very general. Any kind of initiative could be, you know, humanitarian, non-governmental organization, could be, you know, uh, uh, corporate, could be product, could be not product, could be, it doesn't matter. Any initiative of any variety everybody's making decisions. That's why you hire them, right? So somebody says, we should do this. Our market niche or our, our initiatives target is this. That already contains five decisions. And then people build on those decisions. The problem is people make errors at decision-making at the rate of one in five or one in 10. So 10% of the decisions are wrong. And I got that some statistic from nuclear power facilities, nuclear power plants and stuff like that. So if you have people rolling, building decisions on decisions, it looks a lot like manufacturing or you're stacking these decisions and you have an error of one in five at the bottom, all that work is wasted, right? So the thing that, that's the shift, the mental shift that I want to pick up under that delivery is you're probing into the world. You don't have a big delivery at the end. What counts as a delivery is you deliver something into the world to test how does the world really work? differently from how I think the world works. I'll give an example. Exec says our market target market is going to be um, uh, uh, people between 20 and 30 who use Snapchat three hours a day. Something, I just made that up. doesn't matter. But it already has a bunch of decisions. 
So now the first thing is not to build that, but to test the hypothesis, which of those decisions is wrong. We know if you're smart, you know one of them is wrong, but you don't know where, my definition, right? So they put it out. Let's say they make up of something and they put it out into a test market. And they find that the people who are addicted to it are like, are, are like teenagers between 12 and 17. But you see, that's a fundamentally different proposition because they're underage. You have to put in, right, age-related things, right? The ads are different, blah, 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 right? So very fundamental early decision is incorrect. So if you go and you look at an organization, there's chains of people making chains of decisions and at, a, at an error, a horrible error rate. But and by definition, you don't know, right? So one of the things you do when you collaborate, one of the purposes, the values of collaborate, is to get other minds to look at it to break the decisions fast, right? So for example, uh, I'll, I'll take it what looks like a silly example, but somebody not from a Christian company says, I'm going to come and teach a course in English uh, in, in England uh, or in the U.S. on December 25th. That suits my calendar, right? And you go, uh, yeah, no, don't do that, right? You could break that that back. They didn't know. The other mind knows. You break the decision, right? And, oh, but you could do this instead. And so you have add-on, the creative moment where something comes into existence that never existed in either brain before, right? This is third thing that's there that wasn't in either brain. That's collaboration. But that's all ideas. Ideas become decisions. So we collaborate to get better ideas sooner and break ideas faster. But then we probe into the world, we deliver to break ideas as fast as we can so that we don't waste time and money building on a bad idea, right? So this is now a, a, a shift inside the heart of Agile. Like I'm going around trying to get this concept. Aside from this concept, you see, so we go, why do we collaborate to get better initial ideas, to break ideas faster? And there's a phrase in, in English, many hands make light work, right? So people feel better working together and the work goes faster and they have more fun. And that's why we, that's why we anchor on all forms of collaboration. Deliver, it's all about dropping something into the world to do course corrections super early. And I call them course corrections. This is a directional decision. Do we go more this way or this way? And now the organization should be looking at um, what's the least energy that we have to put out to decide is it this way, more this way or this way? I use Twitter. A lot of people use Twitter for that. This logo was like a week of incessant questions on Twitters for placement and color and, and typeface. And you see this little, this little blue at the top? Yeah. That, yeah. Was, that was torture because you, you, what color do you pick for that? Right? So we have the graphic designers. Well, I think this and I think that. And I th well, I put it out on Twitter see what people say, right? And, and they give you feedback. So, so that's the thing. If we say heart of agile, the message I want to give is about that. I, that the new message is delivery is off decisions, but the rest is just go around, reflect, reflect is get the insights, think about what to do, you know, improve, make little experiments and stuff like that. And now when you say it's, it's advisory, that's all we've got. And then everybody comes to the table with their own background of, Here's what I know about collaboration, fear, trust, HR, la, la, la. Here's what I know about delivery, you know, continuous deployment, probes, prototypes, whatever. Here's what I know about reflection. And we bring in modern psychotherapy, solution-focused psychotherapy and coaching, you know, all this sort of stuff. We bring in, everybody brings in whatever kit they've got. And that kit will change from year to year. So I, I don't want to be too specific because in three years, the hot topic will be 
different. So I'm not limiting what the hot topic is. The assertion is those four words will carry you, you know, a long ways. Yeah, and I know, and I know that we're we're kind of almost out of time, but the uh, or maybe we are out of time. But the, I was waiting for the other phone call to come in, and it didn't come in, so I'll okay. I'll let it go. So it comes, in. we'll go for another five ten minutes. Uh, I like it, and it's interesting. You've, just just the language as well. We talked about tone earlier, right? You talked yeah. about tone and picking up on tone. You know, there's obviously a parallel here with you know plan, do, check, act, which is you know a, a cycle familiar to some people. But the language you've picked there, I think, is important. You know, it's it's not just plan. We're talking about collaboration, right? That's not the thing. Many people say, "Oh, that's the Deming thing," and I go, "Plan, do, check, act." I'm good. Where does collaboration happen in plan, do, well, exactly. check, act? Right. Exactly. So, so it, it, I, I feel pretty um, happy, if you will, if see, people see this as an updated version of Deming, that would be a heck of a compliment, right? Because because the plan, do, check, act is kind of inside of there, but it's got the collaborate part, which was which wasn't in the plan, do, check, act. Yeah, and I think the fact that you've put the heart in the middle there, yeah, and for me that connects you know emotions, the yeah. fact that. Uh, as personalities, as individuals, we're, we're to such a large degree driven by our emotions. Right? Um, so the fact that you're acknowledging that as part of the model, I think is important. Yeah, so it's, it's fun, you know, and, and, and if you were to go back to the mid-90s, you probably couldn't have presented this at the time. And for sure in the 60s when Deming was doing this stuff, you couldn't, he, he could have pulled it off maybe, but, you know, but these days, these days it's, a, it's you know, I say to people, we're trying to create a culture of listening. And I don't have more words behind that. It's just, it's just, but everybody is amazing. Everybody, oh, I want to be in that. I want, I want that. Right. They're just like, yeah, I'll go there. <laughs> right. And how, I mean, it's certainly in the work I do with clients, you know, I'm not listened to is, you know, up there, up there in the top, always in the top. Yeah, three complaints about from individuals. And what's interesting? What's interesting is you don't have. It doesn't mean you don't have to talk because you can talk and listen at the same time, right? Because I talk a lot, but I also listen the whole time. The ears work actually independently from the mouth. They both work in parallel, right? So, so you can be mid sentence and you see somebody this amongst our groups, right? So you can be mid sentence and you just note something on the face of somebody else, and you just stop and go, "What's up?" Right? That's listening. Yeah. Um, and I think there's also this, this idea of, of, of generating a listening. So as a, as a noun for someone and, and, and standing for them being something right. yeah, bigger yeah. than that is apparently apparent to them at the time or, or, or listening to our own listening of others. Yeah. So I'm really happy with this because it's four words and that I can't make it any simpler. It's got the heart in the middle. So four words plus a heart. And people see that and they, and they, you know, they relate positively to it. They're happy to, happy to see this, you know, going on. I go, yeah, I could, I could be part of that, whatever that is. Right. Yeah. And and there's a book coming and there's a book coming. Well, I'm very slow. I, you know, it's been a year and a half from now for, for about two years. So it's still a year and a half out. I wrote that the chapter on delivery because that was important to get a whole thing with the molecules and the decision making. That's all written. When I got to the chapter on collaborate, that's such a that's such a large topic, you know. It's it's really taken me a year just to find a thread through through that topic. You know, there's metaphors and there's analogies and stuff, and 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 I finally came to two parts. There's attitude and mechanics. 
And the attitude is all the fear, trust, culture, rewards stuff, right? So there's a whole blob to write there. The mechanics, um, I created a thing called collaboration cards, which are, are, are moment-to-moment actions that people can do to increase the, the inclination to collaborate. And there's a stack of those. There's like 15 of those, and we have a website for them and all of that. But, but that's in the mechanics, also, things like technology, email, Zoom, like we're doing, co-location, distance, da 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 times so, right? All the mechanics of, of, of communication and collaboration are separate from attitude. So it took me a long time. I just wrote, you know, chapter 2.1, which is the introduction to that, where I bring in the, uh, the idea of the organization as a giant mind where every person is a neuron. And the weird thing about the doing a computation, the, com- the grand <coughs> computation is called how do we change the world to do this? Whether it's product and the change is put money in my bank account or you're trying to get people to recycle or you know, wh- whatever your initiative is. And, and now in the book, I have to use initiative. Right? But the organization is like a giant mind where each individual is a, is a neuron with the odd property that neurons have legs. These neurons have legs and wander off in the middle of the computation and then they wander back. And where's the computation? How do you catch them up, right? Um, so that's that's a, a, a baseline metaphor I use. So I, I just wrote that, and I've set it up. So now I'm going to be writing about all the attitude aspects we talked about a lot, mechanic aspects, and so on. So that'll be you know it's going to take a while to get through this. Right. Well, I, yeah, I can't I can't wait. Um, and I think there will be some people who are interested because, and I know that. We, we haven't got long now, but you know, the, do you, are you talking about collaboration? Are you still, you know, in communication with any of those guys who you wrote the, the manifesto with? Are they involved in this project now? Um, so there were 17 people. And, and at that time of the manifesto, we knew it was a kind of a the accident of history that exactly those 17 people were there. So for people who say, why don't you update the manifesto? We, we agreed never to update the manifesto. We said, this is the product of exactly these people in this mood right here, right now. There were many people who were invited and didn't come and other people who weren't invited and might've come. And the outcome would have been different had we had any, anything been different. <clears throat> so this is just the product of us now. Boom. We lock it. It will never get changed. And for sure, we were tilting at windmills differently you know, in the late nineties than are relevant now. Um, so some of, some of the people have never seen each other since I've heard of Ari van Benicum, who's in the, the Netherlands. I, he went, he vanished. I didn't hear like of him or from him for 15 years. I didn't know what happened. And like, he's now resurfaced and, and gone around the world. Some people, uh, a couple of people are really angry uh, sad that they wrote the manifesto. They don't like what it's done to the world. They don't like, in particular, all the certification schemes. They won't give interviews. They won't talk about it. They won't do anything. Uh, there's a couple of those. Um, and some people who don't like each other and won't talk. But some of us are, you know, I, I chat with Ron Jeffries, you know, all the time. I'm on good terms with Martin Fowler. I don't see him much. Uh, Ken Schwaber, you know, I see. And Andy Hunt is um, co-authoring um, an article that I'm writing right now, also with Joshua Karievsky, who, who's one of those people who could have been at the meeting, just didn't happen to be. And he's got a thing called Modern Agile, which looks very similar to Heart of Agile. And so we're writing, uh, the three of us are writing a, a, an article called Rebooting Agile. And we're going like it had its run and it's kind of gone off that way, right? Let's recenter. And I center with the Heart of Agile and Joshua with 
modern agile and, and Andy Hunt with what he calls grows and stuff like that, like replanting and generalizing and making it, you know, the humanity part of it very clear, right? The non, non-fixed process aspect of it is clearer, right? Um, so yeah, we're, some of us are still in touch. And by the way, people often ask you like, how did you do that? Like the meeting was like, I don't know, a day and a half, two days, something like it was, and we went skiing, you know, in the afternoon. So we had the meeting in the morning and we went skiing in the afternoon and then we had more meeting and we had dinner. We had meeting the next day. And then people started to leave pretty fast. So the whole thing was done just ridiculously fast. And, and the thing, this is where my, I got my listening thing from. I kept, you know, over the years, why did it, 17 middle-aged white men, many of whom were published authors and, you know, pundits, and you could imagine, you know, and not short, not short on ego in the room, right? How did they, you know, not kill each other and yet produce this thing? And the thing that struck me was the generous listening. There was, there was like no conflict in the room. We, we had Stephen Miller in the room. And Stephen was from the big heavy methodology family, you know, at the time, automated processes and blah, blah, blah. He had all these things. And, and he was, you know, to some of us, hi, Stephen, he was the sworn enemy. And he was in the room. And we're like, who invited him here? And he introduced him. So we did around the introductions. And we're all like looking at him out of the corner of our eye. And he says, hi, I'm Stephen Meller, uh, Steve, Steve Meller, and I'm a spy. That was his introduction, right? And we all went, fess up. Okay, right? Be here. And... And so, we, but when we got the dialoguing, the, his philosophical drivers were the same as ours. So instead of saying, I don't like your method, you know, and, and Kent Beck of extreme programming didn't know B, DSDM of Ari von Benekum, and he didn't know, you know, and nobody knew what Scrum was at the time, right? And nobody knew what DSDM was. And, and right, we were listening to every, there was everybody immediately gave 100% credit to everybody else like whatever you say is good you're good not a problem what are we trying to do and so even with Stephen Miller we found we found the common you know wellspring and so this generous like somebody would try to explain something and, and the other person will try to help them like what what is it you're seeing that causes you to, to, to want to say that can I go to that place with you that's what happened for two days and, and reflecting on that for all these years is what had, had got me to say, I want to create a culture of listening. It's that generous listening, help you find out the, what did you see that causes you to come up with this sentence? And maybe there's another sentence or thought that operates from the same wellspring, but is easier for me to align with. Right. So that was the magic of the manifesto meeting. Beautiful. And I've never, I've never seen it before since. I've never seen it before since. It was totally unique. Yeah. And that's also a reality in what we're talking about in terms of the ecosystem. You know, the, the just moments in time occur where something, a space opens up. Yeah. We can't predict it. We can't control nah. for it. We yeah. can't optimize for it. Yeah. So, so I, I know we're going we're gonna to end here in just a moment. And I'm just going to give you like the latest, latest, latest thought. Uh, that I've got on any of this. So inside of my writing is a thing called guest leadership. What happens if the guests are the leaders? It's awesome concept. Um, Cause normally you talk about the host is the leader, the boss is the leader, but if the, you know, the guests, 
somebody sees you ran out of you ran out of drinks, you know, and makes it, hey, I'm gonna go do a beer run. Who wants beer? I'll have wine, I'll have coke, you know, da, da, da. a couple of people jump in a car, go 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 do the drinks run to come back. That's guest leadership. That was a guest who did that, not the host. Now you take an organization or a company, the the, the equivalent would be the employees. Right? You have a boss and they, the employees do what they're told. But what happens if the the, the employees take the initiative? They, they become temporary, momentary leaders and they say, hey, we need to do this. Bah, 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 bah. And you get a culture that's popping, right? So that's what I've been striving for for the last couple of years, introducing the concept of guest leadership. But literally just like a week ago, two weeks ago, there's a, a biologist from Chile his name is Umberto Maturana, and he came up with the term autopoiesis and famous from like the 70s for his theory of living systems and so on. And I took his class a couple of months ago. But he has a thing he calls co-inspiration, co-inspiration and co-creation. And he talks about that and from a biological perspective, and it's very interesting and so on. But then one of my colleagues down in Chile on Twitter uh, said someone says what, something about leadership and agile, and they said there's three there's three models that they're looking at this group in Chile. The first is the leader is the maestro is the master, and then does coaching of training on the others. Right. The second is my guest leadership, where like anybody can be a leader at any moment. But the third was new to me, and it was a link to an article by Umberto Maturana, in which he talked about co-inspiration as the new leadership. And this is important for me because actually it takes the word leadership gets subtracted. It's, it's the new organization interactional style. And this is important because I've got a worldwide organization of people doing Heart of Agile, doing meetups, consulting on it. And we were having our first global gathering in Vienna at the end of May. And I said, I don't want to be a leader. I'm not going to tell you guys what, right? I'm already, I'm not going to tell anything. What I can guarantee is I'm not going to do any telling, Right. So we've been using the language of guest leadership, but, but there's something even short about that. And so now if you have a circle, if you just draw a circle of people and you put a circle around any one of those dots for any one of the people, what happens, and this is again, like the writing of the manifesto, it's a co-creation. It's a co-inspiration. There is no leader. Somebody says or does something and somebody else like in jazz, right, riffs off of it and pops something else. So you go pop, pop, pop. It's not that there was a leader. It's actually the absence of leaders. It's everybody just popping the brains all together, right? And so you have a group of people doing much more than any, any subset of them can do, right? So in terms of leadership, looking now to amp up and literally take the word leadership out of the, out of the phrase, and it would be like a co-inspirational collective. It would be a kind of a phrase. Isn't there still something even in that co-inspiration of I that that pop in that popping moment? I am for that moment a leader by standing up, right, and 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 voicing the idea in my head. So it's it's almost like a it's transitory leadership, or it's like a, it is, it is, and that is you're describing my idea of guest leadership. Now, guest leadership would be um, uh, an example. And I was in the Paris Metro. You step out. And there's a woman, and, and she pushes out a pram with twins, right? So she's got twins. She's come from the airport, and she's got two, three suitcases and bags. And she's looking at the steps because there are no – this is France, right? This is Paris, so there's no elevator. Steps, and she's looking like, like how am I going to get – right? And a couple of people jump in, 
and they help carry the suitcases and the pram and all the rest of that stuff up, up the steps, right? The person who initiated that is the guest leader, right? That's guest leadership. But it, it, there's a guest, there's a leader and a follower. The others agreed to do that, right? That's a leadership moment. Now in the co-inspirational collective, stuff is moving so fast. The person who pops the initial idea doesn't have to become the leader of the movement, right? They do a thing and someone else builds on it and they build on it and it can morph and change, right? Right, right. I get that. But um, even if the following is just the listening to the individual in the, in the moment. Now, it's interesting and, and I 100% agree with you. And in fact, I just got done writing about that in chapter 2.1. So you're spot, you're spot on. And, and I have a view, I have a view of, of we have this game called Whack-A-Mole. Do you know whack-a-mole? It's, yeah, it's a horrible yeah. metaphor, but you go to the you know to your country fair thingy and they get these little mechanical moles that pop up out of the ground and you have a hammer and you have to hit them, right? And they go beep, 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 and you try to hit them. So now if we take the hammer out of the equation, so it's no longer whack-a-mole, I don't know what the name would be. It doesn't have a name because you just have moles going up and down. But <laughs> right? <laughs> it doesn't have a name, but but we have the image, right? Or something. Yeah, yeah, whatever. But that's what you're talking about. Right? So good collaboration looks like that, that the people are sitting there and at some instant one will go, and then we'll, and here's the important part, sit down again so somebody else can pop up. Right? So the sitting down is as important as the standing up. So up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, right? So it's a little thing. Right. And it, it, as you say, I can feel the, the heat and the energy of that, right? Just intuitively, yeah. I, I, I get, the, get the idea there. All right, let's, let's wrap this up. That's been wonderful. Fantastic. You, you predicted you, it would go more than an hour. I didn't believe you, and it did. So there you have it. Right, there we go. So um, finally, finally, for people who want to learn more, where should they go? The heart of Agile is where we're putting our things. Uh, it does. It's not a huge site, um, but it's got a few art. We've got a guy who translates uh, articles into French. So there's a, actually a sequence of stuff in French. Um, there's a big community in Spanish. So you can go there and read stuff in Spanish. Um, and then we'll be building out, you know, the blogs and the articles and so on. But heartofagile.com. Heartofagile.com uh, is, uh, you know, where we're putting things and there's a contact form where people can write and whatever. And we'll put that link in the description below. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much, Alistair. That was fun. Rest of your day in sunny Florida. Yep. And uh, All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.